Hello and welcome to a very special bonus edition of White Wine Question Time. And what a treat this is because we are at the How the Light Gets In Festival, the world's largest philosophy and music festival, which is full of incredibly lively debates, interesting talks, great music and late night parties. All things we love here on White Wine Question Time. Oh, and by the way, if you like the sound of all this, they're hosting another festival in September. We've added a link to where you can buy the tickets in this episode's description, so do check it out. So who's on today's show? Well, I am joined by one of the artists appearing in this festival. She's a woman who is passionate about art. In fact, she says when people ask what she does for a living, her usual response is, I talk about art, even if no one's listening, but so many do, thankfully. You may have seen her as a judge on Landscape and Portrait Artist of the Year on Sky Arts or read her book, The Art of Love, which profiles 34 artist couples throughout art history. It's really fascinating. Or you may have seen some of her work as a curator if you're lucky enough to have been uh, wafting in and out of the doors of any of the many Soho houses around the world. In 2016, she was appointed head of collections for the group of Soho House, where she has the dream job of dressing the walls of their members' clubs globally. Now, Soho House owns one of the largest collections of contemporary art on permanent display in the world with over 5,500 artworks across 25 sites globally. And her job is to take care of all of that and just keep adding to it. As an art lover, can it get any better? Well, let's ask her. It's time to dial up Kate Bryan. Kate Bryan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you very much indeed. That is a dream gig, isn't it? It's like you've been given the keys to the castle. I mean, I'm not joking. It is. It is my dream job. It really is. Don't tell Nick Jones, but I probably would do it for free. I mean, I just <laughs> love it. I really do. I, I absolutely love it. I love it so much. It's such a privilege because basically I get parachuted into a new city and I get to meet all of these fabulous people. You know, I speak to curators and dealers and critics and artists and people who work in museums. And I'm saying, tell me about your art scene you know who are your great artists and then I make you know I make friends for life and and I'm paid to do that you know it's like getting a sort of intense degree in you know Indian contemporary art and you get all these fabulous people that you connect with along the way it's so much more vivid than you know than any course or any book it's just real life it's wonderful so it's not just art you're collecting, is it? It's experience, it's people, it's memories that you're making. What, I mean, what a joy. Yeah, no, that's so well put, actually, because I think that's one of the sort of the special things about the collection, that it's dynamic. So when there's an artwork on the wall, there's an artist behind the artwork and they're a member and they're using the club. So when you're acquiring the artwork, you're always thinking about how do I tell the story of this city? How do I help the other members who maybe don't know anything about art or maybe would like to know more about art, have a relationship with the artists who are in this city? And there's so they are more dynamic than just sort of objects to be admired. And of course, nothing is in storage. So, you know, there are other major collections in the world like banks have great collections insurance companies you know and you'd say they're kind of corporate collections and and they are staggering and really important and they're a really vital part of the art ecosystem but a lot of the time by just by the practical nature of it they're in storage whereas ours is always designed to go on the wall and there's nothing in my store everyone always says oh could you just pull a bit of art out for storage we're just going to do this little and I'm like no there is none you know everything is tailored it's site specific it's got to be the artist who comes from that city. And so, yeah, I mean, it makes my job quite time intensive, 
But um, basically, it's time intensive by building relationships. And, and that is just heaven. I love chatting to artists. Uh, well, I, I've, I have to say, I think I've Instagrammed a lot of your uh, purchases, uh, some, some of the way you've laid the work out. Because I, I have been a member of Soho House for many years now. It was started as for those that are um, that aren't familiar with what is Soho House. It, it's um, it's a private members club, but don't let that put you off because it was started out, uh, gosh, over twenty years ago by a guy called Nick Jones. Um, to be almost like the anti-private members club because it was about people from the creative world, the arts. Um, entry point uh, was was quite affordable back then. Um, and the idea was is that he created this community where we could all get together and share ideas. And it was a workspace as well as a recreational space. And um, I use it as kind of an office, really. Uh, but I've been, been to houses around the world. And what you have done in giving each one its own identity is quite remarkable um as well as making it feel like it all hangs together under the umbrella of Soho House one of my favorites uh that I saw uh is in Dean Street it says I don't know what that red thing on her mouth uh, on her face is but it won't stop moving and I thought I really want that that's me Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's great because the, the collection is always evolving and changing as well. And so, you know, we are the custodian of this this huge collection, um, but we're always looking for new artists. And I think that's one of the thrilling things is that Soho House is always kind of growing and expanding and it's looking at what its members are doing and responding to that. And, you know, we're just at the moment putting a collection together for Rome. And I used to live in Rome. And of course, for me, Rome is sort of, <gasps> for, for for someone who studied the Italian Renaissance and for you know my first wow. big my first big break was the Michelangelo drawing show at the British Museum so for me it's like ah oh, it's such a pressured moment to think right I've got to get this collection right and of course everyone wants to be in that collection you know everybody wants to have an artwork in Rome not just the Italian so there is a huge percentage of artists in that house who are Italian of course and a load of them are based in Rome but we've also made a special collection for international artists to be able to respond because you know, I think the artists are really excited about having their work on display in, in that particular place. And so I'm always trying to come up with ideas and sort of experiments. And we did a funny um, commission in 40 Greek Street for when it was sort of rebirthed called Walk the Line. So I asked 20 museum level artists if they would be take inspiration from the great surrealist Paul Clay. Paul Clay said a line is a dot that went for a walk. So the collection is called I Walk love the Line. That. Yeah, great. Really great. Isn't that beautiful? And I just it love is. The simplicity. A line is a dot that went for a walk. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And the playfulness, the slight surreal quality to it. And so I asked them all to make a single line drawing so they mustn't take their pencil or pen off the page. I set the size, you know, I said, so you take this piece of paper, you do the single line drawing. And of course, you're creating rules. And I knew the best thing would be with the artists would all break the rules. And that's why I love artists so much, because they just come at things from a totally different angle. And, you know, that's really inspiring. So, how, you know, how did they approach this? So like Jake and Dinosh Chapman, they just ripped a page out of a children's dot to dot coloring in and, and did all these crazy lines. Conrad Shawcross is an extraordinary artist, you know, works principally within a realm where he uses materials which are almost like machines that he's built. So he's sort of operating outside those traditional parameters. You know, his was his was done um, at a distance from him. But then there were artists who were extremely traditional, like Tracy Emin did the most spectacular, perfect mm. single line of a figure on a bed. 
you know, and it was just beautiful. Yinka shone a bear, did a single line, didn't break the line. It was the Statue of Liberty. So it was just great to see like who broke the rules, who stuck to the rules. And I think what's thrilling for me about that is that those artworks wouldn't otherwise exist. And it was just a nice little snapshot of these museum artists in this moment in time who all responded to the opportunity to play, you know, because art is playful. We think of the art as this kind of big rampant commercial global money making auction led art world and it's not at its heart are just lots and lots of people who who are playful with their thought and with their intention and so it was great to go back to that kind of pure creativity so I I, I enjoy doing things like that and we're going to do more of it I love you know what what you've done as well through all the all of those kinds of ideas is you've You've created a platform for yourself within the art world where you are now, I mean, you're in charge of one of the greatest contemporary art collections. That's really quite something in itself. But what I love as well is that you are now in this extraordinary position of some power. I mean, you are, as as I said, you know, overseeing uh, one of the largest contemporary collections um, that's on permanent display in the world today. But you don't just you don't just take the good times and and the easy the easy route. You also challenge and um, support those that really need supporting. And I was quite shocked to read how misogynistic the art world can be in terms of the gender imbalance. And so this this brings me to my first question to you. So you managed to make an incredibly classy statement about this, about the gender inequality that exists in the art world today, first with not 30% and then with the Vault 100. And both of these were so sassy and they said so much without you saying a word at all. Um, So talk me through what you did and where you hope uh, it's kind of taken us in terms of this, this battle of the sexes. Well, um, the Vault 100 really came from trying to solve a problem, which for, you know, sometimes I get a get a, uh, a project to work on and I think, oh, I don't know how to, there was like, a, sometimes I think, this is my, a piece of advice that has stayed with me, is sometimes if you are stuck with something, you is it better than try and work around the thing that you're stuck on? It's better to actually attack that thing because otherwise mm-hmm. you'll always be slightly there. And so as a kind of um, concept, the issue that I had was that the NED was like a sister to Sower House. So Sower House, exactly as you said, is designed for creative people. It was always gender neutral from the beginning. In fact, it was a fantastic place for women in the 90s yeah. because you don't want to be a pub in the 90s and be a woman, just want a bit of peace and quiet. It's not happening. And so, you know, so a house was a haven, you know, for creative people and it, and it was a community from day one. But the NED, however, was a new thing and it wasn't a Soho House. It wasn't for Soho House members and it was going to be right in the heart of the city of London. And so for me... Well, it's I in the old this... bank, isn't it? Exactly. It's literally... The, yeah. the vault is where the money used to sit. Exactly. It's super cool. So yeah. I was like, okay, so this is a site that really speaks of money. It speaks of power. It speaks of status. It's this old, beautiful Lutchens building. And I was thinking, oh, I don't know, it just seems so so sort of patriarchal to me. And I and I just felt a bit uncomfortable. I was like, well, what am I curating this? Who, who's this for? You know, is this going to be just, you know, and it was showed my own prejudice as well. Is this going to be for a bunch of like guys in double-breasted pinstripe suits? You know, and I was like, and I knew it couldn't be because I knew that, knew that otherwise the people doing it wouldn't be doing it. And of course, through conversation with them, I realized that they were really interested in something which was different and progressive and dynamic. And so once I knew that, I thought, right. So I just took the problem that I had and made it the central thesis of the collection, which was, yeah, gender imbalance. There's a huge gender imbalance in the city. We know that, you know, there is the FTSE 100 CEO ratio. So that's the top 
100 financial leaders of this country and 93 of them were men and seven were women. And so that's why I had that perspective of the city, of course. And then I knew... You, you know, there's actually, there's more CEOs called Dave than there are women. I know. On a, that list. It's and just that's, a, that's a fact. <laughs> it's just shocking. So it's wrong. And then you think, well, the art world must be a really um, equal place because arts by its very nature is liberal and, you know, men and women are artists. And But of course, the art world is absolutely rife with inequality as well. And um, gender inequality and equality of people from different racial backgrounds is a huge problem. Mm. So I decided to just sort of make that the central premise. So I took that FTSE 100 CEO ratio of gender and I just inverted it. So I presented the work of 93 women and only seven men. And the seven men only got in by virtue of the fact that they were in a collaboration with a woman. So there's technically not one solo male artist in that room. And they're all in one room. And as you say, yeah, they're down in the old bank vault, which is this very glamorous, very cool place with all the bank vaults, uh, all the vaults have stayed in there. And so that was a, it was a statement really. And it was, it was so interesting because when I started curating it, I had a couple of people say to me, oh, how are you going to find that many women? And I was like, oh my goodness, <sighs> this is so absurd. Like people just don't know that many women artists, but it's, it's still a problem in the sense that if you just ask someone on the street, it's not their fault because the information is not coming to them because people no. in that world are not doing a good enough job. Name five women artists. You know, a lot of people would struggle with that. And, you know, they we, really we, would. Yeah, we, we have to do a lot of work to correct this gender imbalance. So, yeah, I wanted to be part of that narrative. And I was also hoping that my collection would get spectacularly out of date and I would be made to look ridiculous really quickly. And, that you know, suddenly it would be 80 to 20. And actually, within the first couple of years, I think the ratio got worse. I'm pretty sure we lost one of those women. They, there's a step down from their position, potentially. I'm not sure what happened, but then it became like 94 to 6. So you're thinking it's getting worse, not better. So that was yeah. a great rallying cry. And, and there's huge things to be optimistic about in the art world. You know, we've now got senior women in positions of power. You know, Maria Bauscher was the first um, director of a British national institution when she joined the Tate um, around the same time, actually. Frances Morris is the director of the Tate Modern already. Um, and, you know, even the Vatican museums have got a woman running them now, Barbara Adatta. So there's real reasons to be excited and, and optimistic, but we can't take our eye off the ball. You know, this is a problem I always say that I want to fix within my lifetime. But we've got a huge way to catch up at best, at best, if everything is going well, women get 30 percent reputation, uh, sorry, representation. That's if everything is great, if everyone is doing their work. And it's a progressive best case scenario. Space. Yeah, best case scenario is 30%. And I don't need to point out that half the population of the world, 50% are women. So we're still not anywhere where we need to be. Plus yeah. the fact that the prices are all out of whack, you know, like really out of whack. Like women will be paid probably sometimes 60, 70% less than men oftentimes you know this is a huge problem because we need the art world to reflect the real world and it's actually very hard is it isn't it to sort of uh, remedy that by because there's not like a price list and you can't say well that piece by that artist who's male sold for that so therefore that's that's what we're gonna start charging you mm. out at it doesn't work like that art has to be not like that but yeah. actually what you're that that's so indicative of the landscape in which we work and it's quite interesting I think a lot of people think that for example um the gender gap is in a much ruder health than it actually is it's got worse over the last four years mm. uh it's doubled in the last four years doubled yeah. like and not yeah. in not in the right direction in the worst direction possible it's getting worse so th thank you for 
for doing that for women in art because it's 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 a it's a crying shame and you would hope that it's those areas those pockets of of the working world where women can prevail and they should be and they're not um yeah but you've you've got power and you're using it in a really effective and classy way thank you well i'm trying to and i but i'm also accountable that i need to do better as well because looking back now that project was um 2016 that i started working on it so it's five years ago you know now if i was to do it i would also make sure that the diversity and inclusivity was higher you know like in hindsight i look at it and i go well now i'm in a much better position to make the number of young black artists higher i could have done better with um visibility of artists who are queer you know i'm constantly holding myself to to higher standards and learning and wanting all the time to try and be as progressive as i can like yeah but you know i'm really lucky to have this job and just want to make sure the art world is as inclusive as it possibly can be. You know, there's a, there's an elitism to the art world. We all know it's mm. there, which is totally nuts because we all made art as a kid. You know, like you can say, oh, the opera's a bit elite. Well, fair enough. I've never bloody sang opera. I don't know how to sing opera, but I know how to draw a yeah. picture. You know, not to say that art's better than opera, but it's just something intrinsic and natural about art that we all made it as children. You know, we've all yeah. got that sensation of paint on the page and we understand what it is to want to express ourselves. And yet as an as an adult, yeah, you're not making art anymore, but you're also feeling a little bit nervous about talking about it. You know, like I could ask you, are you who are your favourite musicians and you would never reply and say wow I don't know much about music but I quite like Adele you just say I like Adele do you know whereas with yeah. art people go I don't know much about art but you know I did sort of like that Rothko and there's an ap- apology the whole time and I, I'm really trying to work to, to 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 try and fix that you know I'm not from a privileged background I was the first person in my family to go to university you know my family are, you know they all like art but my brother comes at it from a very different perspective than I do and, um, you know, he's a postman and he loves Jackson Pollock. Get him into the tape and he'll talk about Pollock all day. But, you know, it, it, I think I'm always conscious of the fact that there is a, there's a so many hurdles for people to come to art sometimes. And mm. a, a lot of them are kind of imaginary, not to say that they're not um, vicious and difficult and, and, um, and very um, entrenched but actually you can you can untangle these things quite quickly but you just have to have really want to do it and you need everybody to get together on the same page and just say well, why yeah. is this thing so opaque it should be open it should be and you're quite right it's, I think a lot of it goes back to the fact that our our education just sort of falls off a cliff once yeah. we stop school once, once we once we stop being in education um it just dissipates doesn't it in the same way that I can't speak French as well as I did at school because I'm not learning it every week. Um, maybe maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe we just need to find a way to keep people's appetites alive for the art world um, once they step out of the classroom. Yeah, and I mean, the appetite's there, though, because, you know, the viewing numbers at museums and galleries have never been higher. Huge. I mean, a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, a long time ago, the numbers of people going to museums way overtook people, you know, going to football matches or whatever. I mean, it's it's huge. The appetite for contemporary art in this country, it's, it's been a revolution, even if you just yeah. th- think about it in the last 15 years. You know, it's staggering the number of people that go to the British Museum and the Tate, and the huge percentage of them are, are, are from the UK. So th- there are people who really want to and are engaging all the time with art. But we, so, and, and it's really exciting as well, I think, that social media allows art to come to us in a different way. I think yeah. all of these things are really valuable. They definitely are. And I think you're right. Social, social media is helping uh, 
this calls in some ways because it just it makes everybody um, accessible. Mm. to my next question because now we've got an insight into what you do how you do it and how you try to raise up up and coming artists uh, or people that are underrepresented I wanted to move on to the work that you do as a collector and a curator um you are kind of given the keys to the castle when a, a client tells you go and get x for me or go and find blah for me off you go I want to know how far have you gone in terms of searching for and trying to secure the ultimate piece for a client? <laughs> well, um, how far have I gone? I mean, I suppose it's not really necessarily for a client. It's for it's for a project or, you know, a TV show or just something that I really believe in. But I've, I've gone to quite extraordinary lengths. I mean, I've got on a plane before, you know, if I really need someone. And particularly when... You need to, you're trying to do something and you really believe in it, but maybe the artist has never heard of the the thing you're doing before. Maybe they don't know the TV program or the TV channel or you're, I'm working in a country that I've never worked in before, so I don't have those kind of relationships. So yeah, I think probably the craziest thing I would do is get on a plane. I mean, when I lived in Hong Kong, I used to run a gallery there and I got on a plane to, to sign Gavin Turk to get him to come over and do a show for us. And I was at the beginning of my career and it felt sort of spectacularly scary sort of undertaking this trip with the cost involved. And um, and you obviously have to make the trip really worthwhile as well. Um, and so and because I think so much of this is really needs to be done in person. You know, I think that there's a sensitivity that you have once you understand the artist, you've seen their work in the flesh, you've spent their time in the studio. They trust you if they're that hot artist, you know, and their career is really exploding naturally that artist has to be very protective of where their work goes and so um yeah a lot of times it's about that face-to-face connection and spending time with them and you know a, a meal helps you know some wine if they're a drinker like myself a little glass of wine and um so yeah <laughs> oiling the wheels of industry is what it's known exactly. as isn't it? yeah, yeah yeah and I think that's really valuable although I will say that a huge part of my job has been actually brilliant online during the pandemic because I am very conscious of the amount that I used to travel and I felt terrible about it and you know I think one year I did something like 50 flights and I was constantly doing all this carbon offsetting and actually now what's great is that there's a lot that I can do um, on video call that I would never have dreamt of asking before because I would have felt a bit rude to ask, you know, mm. why don't you just come and see me next time when you're in New York? Whereas now it's like, hey, I'd love to speak to you. Let's just do it tomorrow. And you can set your laptop up and I can look around the studio with you. And of course, it's not it's not the same, but it allows you to do a lot of things and it allows you to be more sustainable. And um and I'm, I'm excited to sort of navigate that future with artists and try and think, you know, my job is global and I work with all these people in these different cities and I can't be there physically every single time. So has anybody ever set you the task of get me a certain piece and then you've had to kind of, you know, enter a bidding war, um, pull some really fast stunts to make sure that, that the piece comes home with you and nobody else? Well, I mean, I guess my career never really gone that way. I've got friends who have done things like that at auction and, you know, they've set up this whole extraordinary, elaborate power play. But 
that's always been a bit of the art world that I've not been that um, interested in pursuing for myself. I, I, I am much more interested in like relationships and younger artists and stuff. And so I've never actually, funnily enough, I've never bought anything at auction. Um, I've yeah. never been in that position. No, um, yeah. I've got loads of friends who do that and I've never worked for an auction house either. I've been an art dealer, you know, I'm an art presenter. I'm a curator, I'm a writer, but that's the one aspect that I've I've never um, entered into. Um, and I, I think in a way, if I'm really honest, I probably do have a slight aversion to it because I don't like the idea of these astronomical sums of money for art. You know, I, uh, at, at that point, something kicks in that I kind of get my back up a bit. And I think, is that for the artists? Is that for the sake of art lovers? It feels like it's just become a power object, a status symbol. And um so, yeah, I have to admit that I do have that sort of natural tendency to kind of go, ooh, you know, and, and I have to check myself on it sometimes because it's probably not always very productive to to have that. Well, I think in, actually it's, you're doing it for all the right reasons. So, therefore, I think it's entirely productive. If a few more, <laughs> if, if a few more people took that attitude in positions of power, maybe things would change. You just don't know, do you? But I, I like the fact that that doesn't drive you. That's that's interesting. And what about the artists that you've helped, whose careers you've helped to generate and um, you know to shine a light on emerging talent? Who who are you most proud of uh, bringing to public attention? Well. Um... There's a few artists that I work quite closely with who I feel like maybe I have been able to be a bit helpful. I mean, always what you're doing is piggybacking on someone's great talent. I mean, I'm not an artist. I would love to have been an artist, but I didn't have didn't have enough originality. And I, I knew that I was good at speaking about art, so that will do. But when I meet an artist and I just love their practice, then I, I really like to try and stay in touch with them. <laughs> I say that I'm an arts mentor and some of them are formal mentorships, but some of them I've just appended myself to this poor artist without them asking me. <laughs> they don't know how to get rid of me. I'm sure that they will eventually start blocking me because they're like, who is this woman and why won't she leave me alone? Um, but they're just people that I really like. And I think oh, I can tell that that person is not terrifically connected or you know there are some kinds of artists who are just sort of born with this great charisma maybe they've got a godfather in the right place maybe they went to the right art school they've got a very strong peer support group and you're kind of like you'll be all right you'll be fine but there's other artists where I think you know their talent is so great but maybe they're not so hot at like self-promotion which you know a lot of great artists aren't that's sort no. of you know part of what makes them a great artist that they navigate mm -hmm. the world in a different way they're often quite interior within themselves and they kind of look at the world as an outsider um but there's you know there's artists that I've sort of come back to time and time again and done projects with like Sarah Maple who's a fantastic um artist she did this great um she actually really pushed herself and made a, a kind of very a world first it was like a sitcom but a piece of video art. So she called it an art com. And Sky Arts, you know, who were great and really um, ambitious and um, experimental and open-minded with their programming, they gave her money to make this art com. So it was actually shown on TV and it was really funny. And Sarah played a sort of a version of herself. I played a cameo in it of, of her, Did like, you? yeah, of her mentor, but I was a real bitch. You know, I was like totally anti-feminist. I was telling her to 
you know, do, do dye a hair blonde and, uh, you know, to don't put your prices up too high. Love you're a woman after all. No one, no one will believe it's worth that much. And like just doling out like bad advice after bad advice. And, um, had amazing people that <laughs> David, David Tennant was in it and he really set himself up. And Sonia Boyce is an extraordinary museum level artist. Bless her. She was in it and she did, she did a really great scene with her. So it was really, um, yeah, really fun to be part of that. And Sarah's an artist that I've known for a while. And we've done, she was in this thing that I curated, Not 30%, which was, um, yeah. you mentioned earlier on, which is a special section of an art fair, the other art fair, who were also really progressive. And I love their values, which is very much about art is for everybody. You Artists represent themselves. So when you turn up to the fair, there's no gallery, there's no intimidation. It's just an artist and yeah. their work. And it's so direct. Um, and there's really affordable art there, but great cutting edge stuff. And so Sarah was in that presentation where I just took 30 artists who were all women. And we said, you know, it was like a protest. It was like not 30%. 30% is not good enough. Um, and uh, she was in that and she did some great imagery for me. And she's done some fantastic stuff for Sarah House. And um, I, I really love her practice. And I, I feel like I'll just be wedded to her forever. She, I curated a show she did last year at Jealous Gallery. Um, She's she's great. And I just curated a show recently for Zoe Buckman, who's actually based in America, but is a British artist. And her career is very special. She's a, you know, a really gifted artist. And so, yeah, sometimes I just sort of put myself into these artists' worlds um, because I think, well, hopefully I can be helpful. And I just I can't help myself, really. Well, that's the passion play, isn't it? That's why you're good at what you do, because it makes your well, heart <laughs> faster. Someone should ask them. Do you want her to back off? Do you want us to email Kate for you? She's is that crazy woman? <laughs> is this lady bothering you? Yeah. <laughs> and actually, if, if you are somebody that's listening to this right now and thinks, oh, I'd quite like to watch that sitcom, or I'd like to learn a little bit more about arts. You mentioned Sky Arts. I, I, I could really recommend um, Sky Arts because I think they do an incredible job in championing not only existing well-known artists, but bringing emerging talent through. And they do some really disruptive, crazy stuff. And it's available, I believe now, on any smart TV. So um, if you are art curious or a passionate art lover, um, I think there's there's a ton of stuff there, uh, including all your fine work, Kate. Yeah, it's very exciting because Sky Arts went free to view last year in mm. September. And so um, having previously been something you could get on Now TV or that, you know, you paid for as part of your Sky, now you can get it on Freeview Channel 11. And so, yeah, the viewing numbers have gone through the roof and there's new people finding it all the time. And it's mm. really exciting. I've been working for them since like 2013. So it's my second home. Um, and they're yeah they're a great bunch they're they are progressive because they're not sort of beholden to potential no. things which have to be a bit more traditional a bit more conventional a bit more predictable they're not worried so much about viewing figures they just do they're kind of art led in it and across yeah. all arts you know all sorts of things so yeah no it's a dream place for me to to broadcast for sure to go what a toy box to play with eh <laughs> my final question to you you wrote a book. How long ago did your book come out, The Art of Love? A couple of years ago now? So it came It came out in 2019 in June. I remember because I did all of my events apart from the final two and then my waters broke because I was very heavily pregnant promoting the book and my waters broke early. So I had to cancel the last two events because I was in hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2019, you released a book called The Art of Love, uh, which examines some of the greatest couples and affairs in the history of art. It covers the long lasting, the peaceful partnerships, the secret affairs, and then the short lived fiery partnerships that kind of burned bright and burnt out. And I wanted to know from you, 
if you could delve into the history of art and liken them to some of today's power couples, who would be who? For example, like who's your Kanye and Kim from the history of art? Who's your Richard and Judy? <laughs> that is such a genius question, Kate. Honestly, no one has answered me that before. Good. Okay. Oh, that is such a good question. I really want to do it justice. Who is Kim and Kanye? Yeah, but so like very famous, really love their fame, play with fame, but both. Well, I suppose the problem is. Yeah. Okay. Oh, who is it? And it's probably quite explosive, isn't it? I think so. Um, but it's all it's all consuming, isn't it? And and I mm. think they were they were kind of everywhere. And now that they're separated, it would be interesting to see where they go next. But you know, obviously he's um I mean he's he's got many strings to his bow. And mm. I think she's quite interesting now. I mean, what we're gonna see is her qualify as a lawyer. Uh and take a you know, so having spent years looking at her in a PVC bikini. We're now going to hopefully be seeing her in a courtroom, which I applaud. You know, you can be both of those things and very successfully. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I suppose one of the couples that comes to mind is Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. I mean, Frida Kahlo is exceptionally different to and Kim Kardashian, but I'm, I would almost inverse them. So I would say that um, Frida is a bit like um, Kanye West and maybe uh, Diego is more like Kim Kardashian. And this is just seems like the craziest thing that I'm talking and I'm thinking out loud. But the reason I say that is because they were so spectacularly famous in their time in Mexico. Um, and they were the most sort of lauded couple of the day and everybody wanted to know what they were up to. And there was there was fire and friction. Um, you know, they were an amazing couple. They actually they got divorced, um, Frida and Diego, and then they got remarried a year later. And Frida said, listen, I'll remarry you under under one um under two rules, in fact, there can be no money and there can be no sex. You know, this has to be totally unfinancial and um, unphysical because she wanted him as a kind of comrade in arms, you know, and, and they were working in service of the um, of the revolution, in fact. And so, but what's interesting is that one of them has really stood the test of time and the other one slightly less so in the common imagination because Diego was this powerhouse. He painted for the, um, uh, for the, you know, for the people, for the comrades, for this pursuit of this, you know, communist dream. He did big public murals um, and everybody knew who he was. He was the most important living artist of his age. Whereas Frida made work which was more domestic, more intimate, more personal, um, more about emotion. Um, they, called her, they called her the heroine of pain because she had so much pain to deal with in her life and really not very championed in, in her in her lifetime, although she was very famous. She only really had a couple of um, major solo shows and the last one she had actually she turned up on her bed um, because she was so poorly and um, and yeah it's her art that's really stood the test of time because mm-hmm. I think we live in an age which is much more interested in that personal and that um, th- that sort of introspective work that really talks about the the way that we navigate the world the way that we deal with pain and pleasure and love and romance and what he had done which was so sort of um, proclamations of power and very much about the, you know the state system and very much about um, external big forces that seems less relevant to us now. And so it's interesting to see that, you know, th- th- that's they've inverted really in terms of their fame. I mean, everyone around the world could, you know, has seen Frida Kahlo in one form or another. She's like, she's an icon now. She's sort of like, mm. you know, the new Che Guevara. You know, you might not know anything about her, but you recognize her. Yeah. Yeah, you would recognize her straight off the bat. And mm. actually, and anyway, he was, mind you, then I suppose there are comparisons with him and Kanye with their political, um, 
ambitions and um, yeah. speaking maybe out. This, speaking maybe this, you should write this book, Kate. You should write the book. But Frida and Diego got there, for, got there first before uh, Kim Ye. <laughs> Kim Ye. <laughs> what about um, Benifer? Who would be the modern day Benifer? Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. These are oh, the who's... hardest questions I've ever been asked, but I, oh. I love them so much. Um, who is Benefer? It was so short-lived. Short-lived. On and off again, together. on and off again. Kind of can't stay, can't, can't live with you. Maybe can't live without you. Yeah, well, we've got, a, there's a few of those in the book. Um, there's also like the, 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 the relationships that I really like are the ones where they break up and then they come back together decades mm-hmm. later. And I think everyone always wants a, um, a reunion for those guys, don't they? So Willem and Elaine de Kooning, they were together. All these affairs happened, you know, they sort of just, they never had enough money for food, but they always had enough money for alcohol and cigarettes. And, you know, Willem <laughs> de Kooning has this amazing exhibition. Everyone's been waiting for it for years. This guy who's such a tortured painter, he finally has made work that he's prepared to show and he shows with this gallerist called Charles Egan. But then everyone turns up to opening night and everybody knows that his wife, Elaine de Kooning, is sleeping with the gallerist, Charles Egan. And it's so awkward. And there's just all these affairs and it's tumultuous and it's difficult. And it's, you know, and then they, they split up. And then she goes on to make some of the best work she's ever made. It's like the 1960s and she's commissioned to paint JFK. So like, you know, the actual Kennedy commissioned portrait. Not only have they commissioned a woman, which is staggering, but also they've commissioned a very avant-garde painter. So super exciting. It speaks of what kind of president he was, I suppose, in terms of his outlook being progressive in those kind of areas. And then, so she does really, really well, but obviously actually de Kooning really struggles without her and he becomes, um, you know, uh, he becomes very, very famous after Pollock dies. He becomes like the new American superstar and it all goes to his head and it's, it's a rough ride for him. And actually they get back together 20 years later and she really helps get him on an even footing um, wow. And so I sort of think it's so interesting that, you know, that dichotomy between can't live without you, but can't, you know, can't live with you. But I think what I love is what Elaine said, because when um, they said to her later on, what was it always like being in Willem's shadow? Because he was so famous and your woman mm-hmm. artist, you know, was overlooked. And she said, I was never in his shadow. I, I was in his light because she she oh. loved him and she loved his practice. And so the book tries to address this imbalance for women artists, certainly. But it also I try and put forward that, you know, just because we've written these art histories and women have been written out, it doesn't mean they hated their husband. You know, we have to be a bit more sensitive to it than that. I mean, those yes. those those relationships were very much of a small pocket of New York and they weren't really about the establishment. And it tends to be what happened in art history later that's the problem, not actually what was happening in that moment. Well, your knowledge is so um, is so tangible, and I love hearing these relationships come to life. And it makes me want to go and just Google all of their work right now. And I think some way, sometimes actually, maybe that's the connect. The disconnect is that we need to feel um, a reason to want to look at to go to a, an exhibition in the first place. Know a little bit about. We're so used to knowing about everything about everyone um, that that maybe there's there's a hunger for that as well. Because now you yeah. You've, Talk me through those two couples. I'm like, right, that's this evening's rabbit hole taken care of. Yeah, and I think that's why I wanted to use that prism of love because I know that everybody loves a good love story. So if I'm going to spend all this time writing a book, you know, it's intense. I wanted to do something where I thought hopefully new people are going to read this. Like there'll be things there to satiate a hardened art world person like myself. Like there's relationships in there that people don't know about like Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns, two men at the height of abstract expressionism in a love affair at a time when being gay was not a public option. 
um, in 1950s America. And so, you know, a lot of people don't know about that relationship from the art world. But then there's also, you know, using names like Frida Kahlo or Picasso to sort of drag people in. And yeah. then and once they're there, sort of say, actually, you know, I got you in through those names or through that prism of love. But hey, there's this amazing couple that you should know about, you know, this amazing queer couple working at the beginning of the century in Paris. They would have been in Picasso's circle, but they've been totally written out of art history. Ethel Mars and Maud Hunt Squire. So trying to do two things at once, really bring a new audience in through using love and then use the big names to help shine a light on the ones that are not as well known and, and ought to be. It's a bit like a festival, really, isn't it? It's like you need a couple <laughs> yeah. of marquee bookings. But actually, then once they're in and they start wandering from field to field, you can, you know, you've got them. And Exactly. It's, it's, I'm no Slavoj Zizek, but maybe you'll enjoy what I've got to say about art too. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, this is so fascinating. I, I didn't know. So the, the queer couple that would have um, mixed with Picasso but have been mm. horribly written out, would, would mm. why would they have been written out? Would it be been because of their sexual uh, orientations or well they were american and they moved to paris at the beginning of the century really because it was a, a, a place for li- more liberal people liberal thinking and bohemian lifestyle and they were in the court of like gertrude stein who's this extraordinary woman who had you know people over for these great sort of salons and um and I think that, you know, they were showing at all the great exhibitions. They were sort of juried members of various salons. So they were, you know, they were kind of a part of the art world. hundred percent. We have all those records. They were well-trained. They were traveling to make their work. So they, they had roots, you know, they were, they were a part of that scene. They looked fantastic, flamboyant hair, flamboyant makeup, fabulous clothing. Um, in fact, the first recorded use of the word gay to mean, um, uh, homosexual or uh, well, same-sex lovers was in Vanity Fair in a poem that Gertrude Stein wrote in 1919, and it was wow. about these two women, but she used pseudonyms for them. So the you know the, the they're there, they're part of queer history, but yeah, try and find their paintings in a museum or a gallery. I mean, even I've never mm. seen one in the flesh. They've just sort of fallen off the face of the earth, and it's people doing fantastic kind of archival work, is trying to pick back through history and find them had this long old life together. I think they both lived until they were in their 70s, maybe 80s. They died and they were buried um, together in the south of France. So, you know, there's work to do. And it's largely because art history has really, you know, been typically the preserve written by... Old male white, pale. White men, yeah, exactly. And and their narrative has not not found its place yet. And so that's why it's important that we have a revisionist history and we go back because mm. we have this particular lens of looking back in history and thinking these people weren't there, but they were. And mm. um and they were centuries before even the last century. And so yeah. we've got to do our work, yeah. I had a very similar conversation on this podcast, both with Skin from Skunk and Nancy and with David Lammy about how we need to stop whitewashing our history. And every everybody needs to have, you know, every, everybody that has a rightful place in history, their, their stories need to be told. You can't just um, put it through a filter of old male and pale. Yes. Um, and yes. that's another prime example of that. Those two incredible women who literally introduced the word gay into our everyday vocabulary. It has yeah. to start somewhere. And yeah, exactly. it's normally... Is normally with people that are, have to be disruptive in order to create new. Yeah, uh, and, and I've that, just write, I've just finished my second book called Bright Stars, which is the story of forty artists that sorry thirty artists that died before the age of forty. Um, and I was really really conscious in that book of making sure that you know I made the representation even better. And it's five hundred years of art history, but just in the last century. 
you know, one third of the artists came from um, underrepresented backgrounds. And so you just do that extra bit of work. But their story is so great and they weave in plain mm. sight with the kind of art history that we've all been told. And I was just trying to understand, like, what is it that's so special about dying young? You know, we have this like fetish for youth and we yeah. have this sort of like fascination with those that burnt too bright you know and so it's those stories but there's amazing artists in there that I, I didn't really know much about before like an, an artist like Amrita Shergill who was in India and she was a major major artist of her day and known in India but just not known here and and mm. makes such a big contribution to our understanding of th that era like we all look at Paul Gauguin he's very problematic because he kind of uses this sort of um, in inverted commas primitive style art and it's the, the whole thing is a, just a mindful it's a nightmare to look at through modern eyes much better to look at Amrita Shergill and way that she was revolutionizing figurative art in the same time she trained in Paris and then she goes back to India and her work is complex and sensitive and fasc fascinating and there's so much you can learn from her so yeah that's been a real buzz doing that work. What a, what a lovely, lovely way to earn a living. Telling these <laughs> yeah. fantastic stories, buying these beautiful paintings and pieces and putting them all together. And um, thank you for sharing so much of it. It's been a real education, Kate. I've loved listening to you. Um, and if people want to know more, um, you have a website and you can follow all of Kate's work there. It's katebryan.com, isn't it? katebryanart.com. Yeah, thank you. Art.com. Oh, my pleasure. Thank my you pleasure. very much. And I'm, I look forward to seeing whatever it is that ends up on the walls of Sarah House Row. <laughs> yeah, I can't reveal anything, but it's going to be it's going to be special. I'm just loving doing it. Oh, that's sad. I can feel one of your greatest hits coming on. Um, thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much, Kate. Really enjoyed talking to you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, there's another How the Light Gets In Festival, chock-a-block full of brilliant artists, workshops and performances on September the 18th and 19th this year. Check out the link in this episode's description of where you can buy your tickets. Mm -hmm.